I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. My guest today is Bernice Young. She's a reporter for Reveal, which is produced by the Center for Investigative Reporting, and you may have heard their stories on public radio. Reveal recently did an investigative series uncovering sexual abuses of women who work in certain sectors of the service industry, such as janitorial work, farm workers, and the domestic industry. Bernice Young was a part of that investigative team, and she recently wrote a book titled In a Day's Work, The Fight to End Sexual Violence Against America's Most Vulnerable Workers, in which she explores the experiences of women in these industries and all of the seemingly impossible circumstances that they face battling sexual harassment, and in some cases, even rape, all while struggling to survive on impossibly low wages, and in many cases, the uncertainty of being undocumented. And for anyone for whom intersectionality is important, especially in relation to the Me Too movement, it's also important to understand the experiences of all women, especially the most vulnerable and marginalized. So here is my conversation with Bernice Young. Bernice Young, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Great. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. You know, I I just wanted to preface our conversation about your book by saying that, you know, I think it's a really important book to read. And, you know, given that we're kind of in the middle of the Me Too movement, the emergence of that movement. And, you know, with that said, it was it was a hard read for me because the stories are really difficult to read what a lot of these women experience. Mm -hmm. And so you open with Rosa's story. Rosa was working on a farm in the Pacific Northwest. Can you talk a bit about her story and what she went through? Yes. So I was working with a team of reporters looking at this issue of sexual assault in the agricultural industry. And we were looking for people who would be available to kind of tell their stories and explain to us what the reality was like for them. And so we were going in search of farm workers who had filed lawsuits or had otherwise engaged in some kind of more formal way about making a complaint. Because I think for us, it was really important that we had documentation, we had information that was vetted to some degree. And so we came across this lawsuit involving Rosa which is not her real name, and began to do some outreach to her. So we went and we visited her um, in the Pacific Northwest. She had been working at a farm there, and we wanted to see if she would be willing to speak with us about what she had experienced. And critically, you know, it was her sister who had borne kind of the the most violent brunt of the harassment. Um, her sister had been unfortunately pretty violently raped by the supervisor. The supervisor had also verbally harassed Rosa. We made a really concerted decision to not approach Rosa's sister directly because we could tell from some of the court documents and the psychological evaluations that were part of the documents that it was maybe just too much, um, we would be re-traumatizing her. So we decided to go and speak to Rosa. And um, we knocked on her door and we had some really great conversations with her over the course of several days and, and explained why we were there and what we were working on and how we were trying to, you know, shine a light on this kind of open secret within the agricultural industry, which was that women face pretty rampant and extreme sexual harassment. And Rosa was really interested in helping us because she had seen what had happened to her sister, what had happened to herself and what was happening all around her. But in thinking about it, had various questions for us, my reporting partner and I. 
she wanted to know if she spoke to us, whether it would somehow impact her current job. And she wanted to know if she spoke to us, whether it might anger the supervisor who had harassed her and who had violated her sister. You know, my reporting and partner and I, um, I mean, you, you do one of those, you look at each other and you look at her and we had to tell her, you know, we really don't know. Uh, we can't answer that question for you. Um, and furthermore, to be quite frank about it, as journalists, we're not social workers, we're not lawyers, we're not law enforcement. And there's unfortunately very little that we can offer except to tell your story with as much accuracy as we can. We told her that she should go and speak to somebody that she trusted and really weigh, um, you know, whether this was something she wanted to move forward with. And after some time, she came back and um, I think quite understandably explained to us that this was just not a project that she could participate in, even though she wanted to, because, you know, she really felt that by speaking up about it, she might be able to get the word out and let people know that this is happening and that women didn't need to stay silent about it. But she, of course, just found herself in that same bind. Right. And I think what makes this really difficult is, you know, when we think about women in these situations being sexually harassed or, you know, actually raped in her sister's case, that for many women, they don't think about the fact that for women, in, in Rose's position, that it extends beyond the woman herself. Didn't the supervisor also threaten her family and her, her children? Right. I mean, I think that is an element of all of this that sometimes when you're looking at different industries or when you're looking at the stories that we're seeing currently where a lot of the focus is on white collar jobs or, or even Hollywood media makers and so on, sure. that may be an element of it, but it's definitely an element for workers in communities such as farm work, maybe even night shift janitorial, where there might be several family members working for the same farm, say, and having one person lose their job might be a difficult thing, but what the what the supervisor can do and what the leverage that they have, if they're going to be abusive about it, is that they can lay off the entire family and, and kind of get the whole family blackballed and can be quite severe for a lot of the workers featured in this book. Right. But then there, there are further risks because often these families are undocumented, right? So not only is there a risk that they would lose their jobs, but there's you know, a risk of possibly being deported. Right. The immigration status piece is a really significant one for a lot of the workers Um, that I interacted with, you know, losing the job, that was, that was, you know, an idea that they were terrified by. And part of the reason is that um, if you're undocumented or have kind of unstable immigration status, you know, the idea of all the work that it would take to find a new job that might not be much better in terms of the circumstances was just overwhelming. They knew that they were often in jobs where they were perceived to be dispensable. They knew that somebody would swoop in and take the job that they had in a split second if, if they were let go. And at the same time, they knew that it might not be so easy to find a new job without the proper papers. But you started this project probably five years ago or five years before the height of the Me Too movement, which went viral sometime in fall of last year. So what made you become interested in researching this project? Well, I think, you know, big picture wise, I've been interested in violence against women and immigrant women in particular uh, for some time now, probably going on 15, 20 years. At the very start of my career, I 
worked on a story looking at domestic violence and immigrant women, specifically those who were here on visas attached to their husband's work visas. And in, in that story, you know, the, the women who were being abused literally had no recourse. There was nowhere for them to turn. They had no status in this country without their husband who were abusing them. They had no benefits. There was no way to, to get a job, get any kind of social service support because of their tenuous immigration status. So that always kind of struck me as this horrible and interesting policy gap, you know, where we're just not fully contemplating the realities of an immigrant woman's experience. Uh, you know, I come from an immigrant family, so I think I was already kind of predisposed to trying to understand the immigrant experience generally. But for this particular story, it really started years before I jumped on it. There was a graduate student at UC Berkeley in the journalism department in the journalism school, and she had gone off on an internship and was assigned to look at child labor in the fields. And in the process, she came across a woman who was no longer a farm worker, but who had been a farm worker, who told her this incredible jaw-dropping story about how this woman had been forced to have sex with her supervisor at a, at a farm several years in a row in order to keep her job since they're hired every season. And she'd actually even had children as a result of this coerced sex, this, you know, being raped by her supervisor. And so this journalism student came back to, to the university, told her advisors, and everybody as I said, their jaws dropped. It was just a story that you can't even process. And so the question became, is this, the reporting question became, is this something that happened this one time to this one woman? It's a devastating story, but it's a one-off experience. Or is this something that kind of represents a larger phenomenon? And so she started digging into it and it, it's a you know, a very challenging story to unearth for, for some of the reasons that we've been talking about. She ended up graduating. Another student picked it up, dug into it, um, and she graduated. And so finally, my colleagues at UC Berkeley decided to really just plant their flag in the ground and say, we're going to do this story. We're going to throw all our resources at it. We're going to bring in collaborators who can bring their resources to it. And that's kind of how this, this whole story began. I started reporting on it back in 2012. A year later, we had produced a, a multi-platform project that we called Rape in the Fields, where we looked at sexual assault and rape among farm workers across the country. Right, but that's kind of unusual, right? Because when the women do find the courage to come forward, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest from the media. I mean, it seems like they had a hard time getting coverage generally for their stories. I think that is an absolutely, that was absolutely a significant barrier initially. I think that for the journalism student who discovered this story, one of the biggest barriers to moving forward with it was this kind of skepticism, this question of who cares? Who would actually care about these stories? Is this going to, you know, quote unquote, sell? You know, these are workers that nobody notices and nobody cares about. Will the public actually care that this is happening? And you know, when we started in on this project, the honest answer was, we don't even know. We don't know. But we just felt that these were important stories. It was a terrible thing that was happening. And that especially, I think, for those of us on that reporting team who came from immigrant families, these were our stories that we felt were important to tell, even if 
you know, the mainstream press at that time in some corners was was not particularly interested in it. Do you think part of the reluctance, especially with this case, and if I'm thinking of the right case, this is the woman who was impregnated by her supervisor, I think eight times, um, is part of the reluctance that the stories are so unfathomable and, you know, so dark. Maybe there's reluctance from the media to not bring those to the public. I think there's truth in that. I think that these stories require a lot of openness to really understanding what an immigrant's experience is like, especially if you're, you know, you're from outside that world. You know, yes, I might come from an immigrant family, but I was not familiar with the universe of farm work. So going in and trying to understand the various reasons why this might happen meant we had to really do a lot of listening and we had to do a lot of, you know, suspending judgment. We had to try to put ourselves in the shoes of some of these women because I think there is a misunderstanding. I think that, you know, I've, I've, I've witnessed some trials, you know, now for sexual harassment. And a lot of times people say, well, why didn't she just report it if, if, if this was happening? This is such a violent thing. You know, she should have said something. And until you really start to unpack that and really try to understand and hear some of the reasons, the very meaningful reasons that people don't come forward, I think you might just, you might just disbelieve or you might just minimize what is happening. But I, yeah, I think, I think you're right that um, the experience of women in the fields is not very well understood. And I think that if you take a really top line kind of superficial look at it, then a lot of it is incomprehensible. Yeah. You know, that question always gets me when people say, oh, why didn't she just come forward? You know, I mean, we hear that with people reporting stories of harassment and stories of assault all the time. Right. But especially with women who are so vulnerable like this. It just reminded me of a quote from Miriam Zeringhalem. So when I interviewed earlier, she was the head of New York's chapter of 500 Women Scientists. And in our interview, she said, we can't expect marginalized communities, especially ones that find their lives are constantly under threat to stand up for themselves in places where they don't feel safe. She said that in the context of immigration, and, and I think it was just after the first travel ban. But that just really stuck with me. You know, people who don't really understand what people are up against in these marginalized communities and why they can't just go out and protest for themselves or, you know, <laughs> write letters mm-hmm. to their congressmen because generally they, they, they don't feel mm-hmm. safe. And I think, you know, it's been really important and powerful to see uh, the Me Too movement and to have so much kind of laid bare through all of the media coverage that it's gotten because look at look at how difficult it was for some of the most powerful famous wealthy individuals in this country how difficult it was for them to come forward you know it, there was so much on the line so much riding on it for them it was very bold what they've done and 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 right. for and so you can imagine for women who don't have those kinds of financial resources who are in fact living paycheck to paycheck or and hand to mouth and for those who don't have confident immigration standing and who might have very complicated lives because of poverty who might not even speak the language fluently and who might not be familiar with the laws that protect them you you know, all of those things just layer on top of each other to the point where I, I'm frankly amazed and astonished that so many women from some of these industries do come forward at all. Right. You know, I want to talk a bit about the the current political climate, right? Because I think one of the main things that or the primary thing that makes
makes these women so vulnerable is their immigration status. They're driven to work in the shadows. And because they're working in the shadows, you know, they are easily victimized. Right. But, you know, with the current political climate and the ICE raids and people being snatched off of the streets while they're taking their kids to school, I would imagine that women are being driven further into the shadows. I think that... um you know, I think about this a lot, you know, whether we would have been able to do this story, th- these these reporting projects um, in this moment in time, because uh, I think the dynamic has shifted quite a bit and the anxiety that immigrants feel is real. You know, I've spoken to immigration officials. I've done some reporting on immigration policy recently, and I've been told by some immigration officials that their policies actually have not changed, that they're still prioritizing the same things that they've prioritized before. And, you know, that they feel like the current focus on deportation and rampant enforcement is an illustration of media bias. And I, you know, I don't have the hard numbers to tell you one way or the other how that's playing out. But I can tell you that the anxiety within immigrant communities is real. What that translates into practically on this issue is is that those who were perhaps hesitant already to talk about this issue, you know, this is not aid in um, helping them feel more comfortable about coming forward. Right, right. You know, so I want to talk about the Maintenance Corporation Trust Fund, MCTF. That's an organization that you talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about what they do? So the Maintenance Cooperation Trust Fund, they're this kind of fascinating nonprofit entity. They're based in California. What makes them really fascinating is that they try to advocate on behalf of non-unionized janitors specifically. So they've done a lot of work around um, janitors who've been stiffed on their payment. They've helped educate janitors about about the fact that they don't have to buy their own supplies. You know, they've helped them navigate around work hour and work conditions. And they've really taken on sexual harassment as a cause in recent years. They had been hearing about it, but it was hard to know exactly how to really tap into that issue since no one wanted to talk about it. But one of the ways in which they're so effective on so many fronts, not only, you know, in terms of wage and hour, in which they've been able to help, you know, workers recoup almost millions of dollars, millions upon millions of dollars, but also also, um, in, in terms of identifying uh, sexual harassment cases, is that they do what they call kind of undercover nighttime outreach into the buildings in Los Angeles and uh, up in Northern California as well. They, they actually send in undercover investigators to all of those anonymous buildings all over the state during the, the graveyard shift to find janitors so that they can have a brief interaction with them, get in contact, get their contact information, provide them with some information about their rights as workers. And through that system of relationship building, they've been able to develop some really important cases where workers' rights have been violated. And actually, the Labor Commissioner of California often turns to them for wage theft, wage and hour issues, and helping identify problems in the janitorial workforce. So I think one of the things that they do, um, one of the tactics that they have, which sounds really effective, is they do these kind of surprise drop-ins. Right. So these um, undercover operations, is they're totally unannounced. And the important part of it is that they're trying to reach 
approach the worker directly. You know, I think sometimes when you think of like undercover investigations, you're thinking of um, some government inspector who descends upon a, you know, a manufacturing enterprise or a factory or something, and they're looking for, you know, problems with the infrastructure. And here, what they're doing is they're really trying to find their way into a building so that they can look for the janitor, you know, so they'll walk into the building, hopefully when it's not too late and the doors are still open, and then they'll post themselves near the supply closet or near the bathroom where they know janitors will probably go to clean and and wait until they can have an interaction with the janitor. You would think that companies would be on to this and try to stop them. Is there any, I guess, (laughs) reports of that happening? I have not heard that, you know, I think it's true that they have... Um, as Lilia Garcia, the executive director, has told me, you know, they try to take a kind of quiet approach to this. They, um, they're they not super public about the fact that they do this. I guess it's becoming more and more public, obviously, and they've gotten press attention in the past. The fact is they, the people that they hire as, un, as undercover investigators are sometimes former janitors and they pass, you know, they, they are not suspicious. And so they just have their, their tactics that they've honed over the years. Maybe this is more of a philosophical question, but do you think that this type of work just attracts predators or is it the other way around? You know, there are people in these positions and supervisor positions and they see that there are women there who are vulnerable and that kind of brings out this predatory nature in them. I think that there's, as in any industry, including Hollywood or the news media, there are certain people who are inclined to engage in this type of behavior because I think at the root of all of this is an interest in abusing and exploiting your power. Um, and so they're just in every industry, there's going to be supervisors and bosses like that. In these particular industries, what makes it perhaps particularly acute is that you have workers who are vulnerable in really particular ways. You know, they are so dependent on their paychecks. They're maybe especially fearful because of their immigration status. And I think there's also the element of isolation to all of these jobs that really can be used as a weapon against the female workers who are being abused. We've heard stories about how farm workers are forced to get into the pickup truck of their supervisor under the pretense of moving them from one field to another, one part of the orchard to another. And that's kind of where the opportunity is created to, you know, for them to be assaulted. We've also heard of night shift janitors who, you know, are attacked in supply closets or in bathrooms where supervisors know there will be no video cameras. And then, you know, for domestic workers, sometimes it's one worker in someone else's home. So the the isolation makes sexual harassment kind of a, a very particular workplace hazard for these workers. Right. And so you talk about how in some of these circumstances, when women do come forward and they actually lodge a formal complaint, what they're complaining about typically is not getting their wages, not being fully paid or being unfairly fired. And often they don't actually talk about their experiences with being sexually harassed or assaulted. Why is that? Does that speak to the level of desperation or, you know, the financial need for these families? It's a really interesting phenomenon that I heard, you know, first from a a community worker in the Central Valley of California named Jesus Lopez. 
we've heard this time and time again from a lot of people who are on the receiving end of complaints about very extreme sexual harassment and assault at work. The shame and the fear of not being believed and immigration status and, you know, all of these issues that we've been talking about that make it difficult for anybody to kind of come forward about sexual harassment at work just prevents them from coming forward. And it's really at the moment where the problem is starting to impact their pocketbook and their bank account that it drives them. It's it's an incredible motivator to step outside and way outside their comfort zone and to begin to report something. Because what Jesus told us is that, you know, one of the first farm worker sexual assault cases that he encountered, you know, it it wasn't about sexual harassment. This particular farm worker came and tried to see him. And when they finally met, she was complaining about a few dollars basically that were missing from her paycheck. And he could tell that there was a lot more going on, but she had been fired and she was trying to recoup a little bit more from her paycheck that she was owed. And it was only after so much you know, patience and prodding that finally she admitted that she had been raped on the job and that her boyfriend who tried to complain about it was also fired from, from this farm. And so this stuff is so deeply buried, you know, and so many women just kind of hold it in and try to continue on. And it's really the financial precariousness of it and their lives is really kind of what tips them sometimes into going outside of what they're comfortable with and reporting sexual harassment. Well, I would imagine that the financial piece is really important because perhaps they see it as a way to move forward. Maybe they can pay for their children to go to school and, you know, not have to do the work that they're doing, or, you know, possibly it's a way to move away from their situation to move into a different city or a different area. I would imagine. Yeah, and I think a lot are also they're they're not only providing for their livelihood here and maybe kids here, but they might also be sending a significant portion of their paycheck yeah. back to the home country. You know, so what they're earning here, you know, is just subsistence. Uh, the rest of it is going home, and and I think that adds to that desperation. That adds to that whole calculation because it's not just one or two or even three people that might be completely dependent on your paycheck. It might be an entire extended family backy. So you talk about a study in the 60s by someone named Neil Malumuth, and he was an undergraduate at UCLA. And I think the study was about sexual violence, right? But what was, something interesting happened. Um, he had a, a conversation with some friends or he had an experience with some friends that prompted him to throw a last minute question into the study. Can you talk a bit about that study and what was uncovered? Right. So Neil Malmuth, he was at UCLA. He was really interested in this question of whether media influenced men's aggression, especially sexual aggression toward women. Because at the time there was a lot of, you know, billboards, magazine ads, you know, for every type of brand where the violence against women was being glorified. It was being used to sell all of these products. And he was concerned or at least very interested in figuring out whether that fed violence against women. And there were people who, would, who were saying, well, no, you know, it's just a dramatic and interesting media. And others who were saying, yeah, of course, it's planting the seed and showing um, and really kind of supporting the idea that violence against women is okay. And in fact, it's sexy and it's glamorous and it's glossy and all those things. So he's designing this study and he was almost finished with it. He was going to have people look at, you know, basically an, uh, a, a story from Penthouse, some with violence in it, some with violence taken out. And then he was going to have them fill out a questionnaire and see, did 
those with the violent passages where they, you know, did they respond in a way that made them seem like they would act more violently? And um, at the very last minute, he was standing around with a bunch of his guy friends um, in the hallway of some academic building. And one guy saw a woman and, you know, she passed by and he said to the group, uh, wow, you know, she's really hot. If I, if I could jump her, I totally would. And all of the guys just kind of nodded their heads and were like, yeah, right, right, right. And it really stuck Neil Malamuth as surprising. Um, and so he attacked on a question that said, if you could sexually assault somebody and get away with it and there would be no consequences, would you do it? And so he ran his study. And that whole part about, you know, whether exposure to one pornographic article with or without violence, whether that changed behavior, you know, didn't, didn't really prove much or show much. I was just really surprised to learn that a good number of people admitted that they would sexually assault someone if they knew that there would be no consequences. So that really launched an, a different line of inquiry for him that's been really fascinating, uh, uh, kind of a, uh, a psychological scale that he calls to rape, where if you, for instance, buy into more traditional male-female roles and stereotypes, and if you tend to view sex outside of the context of relationships, that you might be more likely to, to answer in the affirmative this question around whether you would, you would do that if you weren't going to be caught. And then, you know, to the coda to that, which was really interesting, is that he had given this kind of psychological scale that he developed, this likelihood to rape, uh, issued it to some students that he was working with. And then 10 years later, I think something like 10 years later, he wanted to see what had happened to those individuals. You know, was how accurate was the scale that he developed? And so he was able to get some funding to track down, you know, a good number of these former students that he had who had filled out this questionnaire and reissued that questionnaire and then also talked to their partners at the time. And it was really interesting because what he found was those that had scored high on this likelihood to rape questionnaire had actually grown up to become more sexually aggressive, not only through their own personal reporting of it, but also confirmed by their partners that they had engaged in sexually aggressive behavior. You know, I think it just speaks to the fact that it's not like there's one kind of predator out there necessarily. Sure, there might be some people who, you know, in terms of their brain chemistry, have some mental health issues that make them prone to be a predator. But there's also just a lot that are socialized into thinking that can make them more inclined to be sexually aggressive um, than, than we might be aware of, than we might ever think, you know. So I want to shift a bit to domestic work and domestic work specifically in, in homes, in private homes, right? There was some really interesting and heartbreaking stories in the book about that. And I think one of the things about domestic work is that often, speaking of isolation, these workers are in the home of their abusers. They often live in the homes of their abusers. And you talk about one story, and I think this was featured in the New York Times, where this woman worked you know, 18 hours per day and she wasn't given a bedroom. And she was forced to sleep on the floor behind the living room sofa. And I just thought to myself, mm -hmm. you know, who are these people? Who are the people who hire? Right. I mean, I've, I've used babysitters and, you know, people who help me organize. I mean, I can't imagine. I've never in my ever thought that it's a good idea to ask another human being to, to sleep on the right. floor. Right. And, I, you know, I, we heard these stories of... 
um, and and there are books and so many industry reports and you know attorneys who have filed lawsuits where they recount just incredibly inhumane working conditions for domestic workers. I don't know why it is. You know, I, I also honestly can't really get into that mindset because it seems so just alien to try to treat another human and worker that way. But, you know, we hear stories about even workers who are forced to sleep in the bed of the child that they're taking care of, um, that they're required to sleep in the bedroom closet of the elderly person that they're taking care of so that if that person needs help in the middle of the night going to the bathroom, they're right there and immediately available you hear stories about, you know, domestic workers who might have to prepare a meal for their employers, but then are not given access to the kitchen to cook their own meals. You hear about all of these cameras that are set up to micromanage and surveil the domestic workers doing. It is really astonishing what what happens. And I think there's something about it being your own home, you know, you're the master of your domain kind of thing that however you run your household, that this is your space. And so you can just tell other people how to exist, you know, within your home in a way that can be extremely abusive to the employees that you might have there. Well, I'm still just trying to wrap my my head around it. Just some of the stories that you've just told me, I'm thinking you're in, in your home with your family and maybe your elderly parents and you know, you're having Thanksgiving dinner and you're going about your day, your kids are coming home from school, but you've got a human being sleeping in your closet. Mm-hmm. With a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. I mean <laughs> <laughs> Right. I and you know, um I think part of the beginning of my interest on looking at labor issues goes back to my family coming from Hong Kong where domestic workers from Southeast Asia are a pretty common thing for most most people in, you know in the middle class and so in in trips back to Hong Kong I have observed, you know, just some pretty horrific conditions for domestic workers there too. And, you know, certainly you can look up any, you know, you can just Google domestic workers. And I think anywhere in the world, they're, they're just dealing with some pretty harsh working conditions. I, yeah, it's, it's, I think there's just a, must be a level of dehumanization that's happening there where you don't really see this person as anything but labor. Right. Right. And then also the challenge of, let's say a woman is in this position and she decides, you know, I I don't have to take this. I'm going to find a new job. But maybe she has children at home and, you know, her income is meager and she wants to find a new job. She can't afford to take days off to look for a new job and go to an interview and put in job applications. You know, and if she's operating on very little sleep because she's been sleeping on the floor, you know, I mean, the, these these situations are impossible. Right. It's it's such a bind. And then the other element, too, is if you're a live-in domestic worker, if you decide that, you know, you're in an abusive situation, you're being exploited, you're maybe even sexually being sexually assaulted, you know, this is your home. Right. So if you quit, you leave, then you're now homeless which was the scenario for one of the women featured in the book, June Barrett. You know, she she talks quite compellingly about how she often had to stay in job far longer than she would have preferred, but she couldn't risk being homeless. She had to figure out a way to tee something up, a, a new job before she could leave. And I think this is also a scenario um, where organizations like the National Domestic Worker Alliance, they've been doing a lot of work around human trafficking because there are also too many stories of, of individuals who you know, they get a job as a live-in domestic and nobody knows they're there. I mean, they're literally behind closed doors. Sometimes if they're brought from another country, you know, their passports might be taken away. Um, they might be underpaid and 
you know, they might not speak the language. There's just no way to really get outside of that really, really difficult scenario, abusive scenario. Um, and, and some of that fits the definition of human trafficking, human labor trafficking. So being a victim of sexual assault or rape or, you know, sexual harassment hard enough without having to go home or actually live in the home with the predator, with the person who's abusing you. I mean, that just compounds the situation. And I think one of the women that you talk about, she was afraid because she knew that each time her employer would come home for lunch from work mm -hmm. would mean that she would be assaulted. Right. And and he apparently started out by bringing home coworkers and secretaries and so on. You know, she would see this employer and his behavior. And so uh, when he started showing up without, you know, any women in tow, she it was just a clear signal about what that meant. And it was not an easy way out. And she became really angry. And, you know, but it's hard to broach even with this man's wife, you know, because this guy was married and his wife had a job far away. So she wasn't home very much. So she never found a way to really discuss it with her. She didn't know how to say something. It's really a kind of an untenable situation to find yourself in. So, uh, you know, I was surprised to, to read about the Anita Hill case. And actually, it's interesting because it's not a case. But anyhow, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, right? You make the point of reminding us in the book that this was not a trial, but a hearing. And but I remember that. And I remember it felt very much like a trial. Part of it was the way that Anita Hill was questioned, mm -hmm. right? Do you think that that hearing, how did that shape the way we view women who come forward with sexual mm -hmm. harassment? So Anita Hill coming forward in this extremely public way, in this nationally televised way, I mean, was kind of remarkable, incredibly remarkable. It, this was kind of the first public airing of a sexual harassment complaint. I mean, I think now, you know, in 2018, we forget, especially in, this, in the midst of Me Too, how historical it was that Anita Hill spoke out so publicly. Because before that, you know, no one really did. And actually, before that, it wasn't even that many years prior to that, that the Supreme Court had decided that sex harassment was a form of sex discrimination. So all of this was, you know, is relatively new in our legal system and even in the way that we talk about it. So Anita Hill, so bravely and with such incredible poise that I still marvel at, talks about how she was made to feel uncomfortable and all of the sexualized behavior she says she experienced while working with Clarence Thomas. And the senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee, many of them basically kind of grill her. And it's almost as if she's on trial. Um, it was very antagonistic to the point now where, you know, Joe Biden, who was the head of the Judiciary Committee, apologized, you know, and... Um, yeah. Maybe a little too little, a little too late. Who knows? But, <laughs> but I think what <laughs> a few decades <laughs> right? later. But you know, I think so. It was at once this incredible moment and opening, and really the beginning of the breaking of the taboo around speaking out about these issues. Um, at the same time, it also created this dynamic that we really haven't shook. That that is. Women who speak up about sexual harassment tend not to be believed and they tend to be grilled, you know, they tend to be met with skepticism. Everybody seems to think that we know how women should respond to this. 
you know, as if there's some recipe or instruction manual that women get that when you're sexually harassed, this is automatically the way that you're supposed to respond. And I think the public perception, and this is proven out by polling at the time during the hearings, that a lot of people found her not credible because she didn't immediately report the sexual harassment. And I think it's so interesting to look at it now, especially in this Me Too moment, because yes, again, Me Too is this moment, another further breaking of the taboo, hopefully, you know, shattering that glass even, you know, even more. But what it also illustrates is even some of the most powerful women amongst us had an incredibly difficult time speaking up about some very extreme sexual harassment. And sometimes it took years, if not even decades to come forward about these horrible things that happened. And so the very idea that, you know, if it really happened, then a woman would automatically feel so outraged that she would go and report and make a big fuss about it is not actually how most women respond. And in fact, you know, there's social science research to show that what most women do is they are resourceful and they're resilient and they're constantly figuring out micro strategies to divert and evade the harassment. And there's an, an incredible amount of energy spent by women in, in the workplace to kind of do this work to avoid the right. sexual harassment. And it just has gotten me thinking a lot about, could you imagine if all of that energy was actually just spent on letting us do our jobs? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, that's, that is amazing. That's an excellent point, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we just want to get on with it. We just kind of want to think about our careers and think about the work that we're there to do, right? And think about our own passions, right? And right. Own, and we don't want to yeah. be seen as complainers. We want to be known for our, the quality of our work. We don't want to be gossiped about because it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know, we, we're afraid that we won't be believed if we say something that would be just as devastating as, you know, as anything else. Uh, we don't want to lose our jobs. We don't think that the boss is actually going to respond in a way that's going to be helpful. You know, I think it's, it's great that, you know, for those who are in a circumstance where they are ready and they can come forward, I think Me Too is, is showing that you should and you can. But I think where I'm spending a lot of my reporting attention right now is looking at some of those structural issues that still exist that don't automatically go away as a way to move the ball forward, move this conversation forward beyond reporting. So what can be done about all of this? I mean, are there any examples of successes that can set a framework for dealing with this on a larger scale? I do think that one big takeaway, I hope, from this book is not just that there is a significant problem that needs to be contended with, but also that there are incredibly resilient women who, despite terrible things happening to them, are still getting up every day, going to work, doing their best. And then not only that, some of them have also become activists in trying to address sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. And, I, and the case study that I'm thinking of that I think is just so phenomenal is the night shift janitors in California who have just gotten so activated around this issue, thanks to some great support from the union and also the Maintenance Cooperation Trust Fund 
that organization that does the undercover investigations. You know, sexual harassment can be such a tricky, uncomfortable topic for even organizations to bring up. So for a long time, I, I would argue that unions, you know, have kind of kept a little bit of a distance from, from the topic. I think that's for a lot of reasons, including the fact that maybe some of the people who are being accused of sexual harassment might be members in the union too. But, you know, in Southern California with the, with the janitor's union there, they decided to really take this issue on directly. The successes that they've had, I think it illustrates the power that organized labor or worker advocacy can have on this issue. They met with a lot of resistance initially from their membership. Some of their male membership were not at all interested in, you know, taking this issue on. But the union leadership decided that this is what they were going to do. And as a result, they were able to get legislation passed in the state of California to really think about real ways to prevent sexual harassment for night shift janitors. But also it really activated uh, a lot of the janitors who had been sexually assaulted. They were provided with multi-week training and now are doing outreach to other janitors to teach them about what their rights are um, around sexual harassment. Um, They've become very vocal and public and visible about this issue. You know, they've done rallies and marches. They've they've blocked intersections with big banners that say end rape on the night shift. And they've just really had their own kind of um, coming out moment around this issue and really tried to demand that the public pay attention to their cause. Because I think night shift janitors are working in the middle of the night. They're, they're one of those industries, those invisible workers that a lot of people don't see. And, you know, having them take to the streets to say, you have to reckon with us and the fact that we are here and the fact that we're dealing with some terrible work conditions, including sexual harassment, you know, and and you have to also lend your support and you should lend your support to our cause also. I think it's just been amazing to see, you know, an industry go from not really knowing how to talk about it to really pushing the envelope and pushing the issue to the forefront. So do you have any ideas about how women, you know, like myself or women who might be listening can be better allies to women who work in these industries? I think the first step, and I I know this sounds like an obvious one, but the truth is, you know, sometimes you don't think about some of these women workers um, until you meet one and you start to hear her story. And so I think that first step is maybe what's happening with Me Too now, where there's this effort to be more inclusive of who we're talking about when we're talking about women workers, that we're not just talking about women working in offices or in glamorous jobs, that we're also talking about women in manufacturing and law enforcement and the farm and every other industry. So I think just broadening our lens and and just having a, you know, all women all industry point of view, not an us versus them kind of trying to eliminate some of that class distinction. So the question is, okay, how do we interact with some of these industries in which we might be concerned about the women working in these um, fields? So I, I can't go out and necessarily show up and ask a farm supervisor, you know, how he's treating his workers, but I might be able to figure out a way with the foods that I'm buying, the restaurants that I'm going to, seeking out information about how they're sourcing their food. There is a fair food program that does exactly that. They, in addition to better working conditions and better wages, they make all of the farms that work with them sign a code of conduct that has zero tolerance for sexual harassment. So there are, you can go to the fair food website and look at all of the companies and and grocery stores that source from fair food 
from the fair food program. So there's things like that. You know, if you work in an office, you can go and you can ask your building property manager, who is our cleaning service and what's their track record like around sexual harassment? Do they have policies in place? Do they train their workers? You know, some of the workers here at our building used to work at night. And after we did this story, we realized, oh, you know, one of the things that some of the workers would like is if they could work during the day. We asked our um, our property management company if they could ask the janitorial services company to shift the hours of our of our workers. And it's really not at all an issue for us. It's things like that. I, th- I think, you know, figuring out how do we interact with some of these industries where, where there might be workers that are maybe harder to access, but who just by asking the question uh, and making employers yeah. and making companies and corporations, putting them on notice that we care and that this is a, a value that we hold as consumers, I think is critical. Those are excellent suggestions. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, well, Bernice Young, thank you so much for joining me today. The conversation has been really meaningful to me. Thank you. I really, really appreciate your having me on. 